Hello and welcome to today's episode on blockchain and financial inclusion. I'm Effie Pilarinu and I'm with my co-host Arun Krishna Kumar from Rhetoric in London. And I'd like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Jane Thomason, who we are very excited to have with us. Uh, Jane, please tell us about where you are and uh, about yourself a bit. Hi, I'm Jane Thomason and I'm joining you from Brisbane, Australia. And I have a long history of working in international development programs in emerging markets. And in the last three years, I've increasingly turned my focus uh, on blockchain and social impact in emerging markets. And I'm a speaker, blogger, mentor, and uh, someone who's really focused on trying to see blockchain make the transformative changes in the world that it has potential to do. I mean, Jane, I don't know where to start asking you about the book that you plan to write on blockchain and social impact, or shall we chat about specific projects that you're involved in? What do you prefer? Uh, you can ask me anything. That would be fantastic. Where, where are you going to take us? Where are these case studies? Um, I think the two case studies that I'd like to talk about, one is in, uh, they can both be global because they're around um, financial inclusion, but one is uh, has its roots in India and one has its roots in Papua New Guinea. So I wanted to talk about the first one, which is one that I've been involved in since its very inception, and it was, it was born out of a hackathon in London in 2017 when uh, we from Apt Associates went together with the Central Bank of Papua New Guinea and put a financial inclusion challenge to the London hackathon. And Papua New Guinea is a country that has 85% of the population unbanked. So since that time, um, I've been working with the winner of the hackathon who managed to develop a prototype at the hackathon of a device that works without electricity, without internet and only 2G mobile phone coverage and allows the creation of a unique identity hashed up onto a blockchain and then the sending and receiving of um, digital currency and also can allow village entrepreneurs to microgrid trade small amounts of solar energy. So it's absolutely um, a kind of extraordinary thing, which if we could get it to scale, could really um, address the problems of the 2 billion people who are financially excluded in the world. The second one that I, I'm excited about, and I'm I'm only peripherally involved in it, but I, I went to Chhattisgarh in India last year and was very interested to hear of the government's plans to issue uh, low-cost mobile phone devices to uh, their tribal population. So that the government's actually bought 5 million low-cost mobile devices, which they're in the process of giving out to tribal families in order to be able to connect them to government services, government subsidise and bring them into subsidies and bring them into the economy. And they just ran a, ran a blockchain challenge. And so they're planning to do this using blockchain. And I think that's a very exciting initiative as well. Uh, Jane, are you doing that through GovBlocks that you're involved in as an advisor? Yes, yeah, so GovBlocks is the Chattisgarh one. They were just a, a winner of uh, part of the Chattisgarh challenge. Um, but the initial, the initial outreach was, and that's one of the amazing things about 
the internet and social media is that the someone from Tatterskar reached out to me and wanted to know more about blockchain and talked about what they were doing and invited me to go there and I went there and these things become possible people being connected all around the globe who are all trying to solve the same sort of problems. And I think that's one of the most extraordinary things about this digital age that we're living in. So, Jane, you you work out of Australia, but it seems that uh, you have your heart and your mind and maybe your hands too uh, everywhere in in Asia and and in Europe. Um, And I know that you're also involved with um, efforts at the OECD. Uh, You're the CEO of Blockchain quantum impact. Can you tell us more about all this uh, world? Uh, Maybe first about the blockchain quantum impact? Yeah, look, I can. I mean, essentially, I left my job as CEO of Apt Associates Australia and Britain in um, April this year because I really wanted to focus on digital. So I've retained work with them, helping them work on digital transformation and they work in 50 countries all around the world and so I'm really keen on helping them also embrace and look at opportunities to implement digital transformation within their projects. Um, Blockchain Quantum Impact, I have to admit, is an is an umbrella company that I've set up because I've gone out on my own now. So I say to people jokingly, I'm having my hashtag blockchain gap year while I actually figure out where I want to <laughs> where I want to really focus my efforts. I'm also active with the British Blockchain Association and I am on the editorial board of the Journal of the British Blockchain Association and Frontiers in Blockchain. In my mind, you know, my vision is that if we connect all of these uh different blockchain use cases up and we work to bring them to scale, then we can achieve transformations on a global level. So I don't particularly represent any global organisation, but I've taken it upon myself to go and talk to them and try and um, educate people and try and inspire people about the real potential for blockchain to have a major social impact. And particularly with international institutions and donors and governments, there's a real lag in their knowledge and education and there's a real need to be able to kind of bring them into understanding what blockchain can do in terms of transforming both government services, bringing people into the economy and making people's lives better. And I just think there's a kind of education task there. How was your experience with OECD? What was the what were the key takeaways from OECD regarding the regulatory aspects around blockchain? Well, it's been really interesting. So I think the first thing to say is that um, this meeting that was on last week, I think, exceeded everyone's expectations. So it was really the first global blockchain policy forum. It was broader than uh, financial inclusion and regulation. They did do an event about six weeks before, specifically looking at digital assets and regulation. But this was about all of the aspects of blockchain. But they had a 1,000 people actually at the uh, conference and 18,000 people from 200 countries were listening wow. into the live stream. And I just think that that's a sign of how important people think this is and how much potential there is for this to be really transformative. I was very pleased to see particularly the OECD and the World Bank in terms of 
institutions standing out there and taking a leadership role. They had the heads of state from Bermuda, Mauritius and Serbia really saying that they say that digital can transform their economies. And they had the Development Assistance Committee having a closed-door session on how blockchain um, can be used and scaled within development assistance programs and and then talking across the different sectors around healthcare and security and supply chain and so forth. So I think everyone left there excited, knowing a bit more. It was like a blockchain masterclass, but I think that the international institutions and governments will now move on with some greater engagement and greater um, embracing of their role to help shape the technology. Was there a sense of urgency at all in terms of um, either taking uh, steps uh, forward or um, sort of protecting uh, with more regulation? Was there any of those senses that you got from from this meeting? So, look, I think it was various, to be really honest, because I think there were, there were people like me and, and others who were saying, this needs to be urgent, this is happening now, you know, you need to be part of it. Um, and I think that, you know, there were both international agencies like OECD and World Bank who gave a sense of urgency, the governments gave a sense of urgency. Um, but, you know, a lot of the traditional institutions, if I could say, have been in a sit back and look mode, but I think they're now realising that sitting back and looking is not an appropriate response with the pace of the digital acceleration. So I think we're going to see um, a lot more focus and activity. I wouldn't say everywhere urgency because I think there's this massive knowledge gap. And so a couple of the Prime Ministers actually said, we normally get our information from international institutions, but they haven't caught up either. So we've been reaching out to individuals around the world who know about this and bringing them in to help us. So um, there's a big piece of work with the international institutions to actually upskill themselves and their executives so that they've got enough knowledge to be able to work with governments to help prepare them for the, the things that they need to be aware of. Uh, Jane, typically when we regulate financial product, the knowledge of uh, the product itself, the financial markets and the idiosyncrasies of, of, of that particular product is what will help drive the regulations. But when we're looking at blockchain, value is being created digitally and there's quite a lot of algorithms out there that create uh, the value, which means there needs to be some kind of a technology focus group. Uh, so there's like two aspects of it. One is your financial aspect of it. The other one is the technology aspect of it, which makes it complicated. What are your thoughts around this? I mean, how do you think people, I mean, the likes of the SECs, the uh, the FCA and uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore, maybe the, the three leading regulators across the world, how do you think they should approach this? Well, I saw the uh, head of the Monetary Authority of Singapore in Bangkok, and he was incredibly impressive. I would really single him out as a a very, very knowledgeable thought leader in this space. And I think a lot of the things that Singapore are doing is, are very impressive. Um, I also uh, was at a meeting with the APEC regulators in Tokyo and then the OECD had a, uh, a meeting in Paris. And I think that the regulators are trying to figure it out because one of the, the realities is, first of all, the technology is moving faster than the regulators' capacity to keep up. And I think the second thing is that because this is a technology that 
moves beyond sovereign borders. The kind of old style of regulation isn't necessarily going to be the appropriate way to be able to deal um, with blockchain and digital assets. So one of the things that came out of the OECD meeting was this um, call for, first of all, an international taxonomy. So people were using the same words to talk about the same things because there's a lot of variation in the language that people use. And I think there's a couple of points to make. The first one is that the technology is moving faster than the capacity of the regulators to keep up. Secondly, the traditional model of regulating um, isn't going to work with blockchain because it uh, moves beyond sovereign borders and so there needs to be another way for countries to be able to um, voluntarily work on what kinds of standards they might adopt for blockchain. There's a need for a global glossary, if you like, for uh, definitions in blockchain because there's a lot of looseness in the language. And the other thing that's clearly very important um, which very strongly came out in the OECD meeting on digital financial assets. It's going to be necessary for the technology partners and regulators to work together because it's the technology people who actually understand where the technology is going, what it's doing, and can help the regulators think about, you know, what are some of the issues that they might want to include in their standards and so forth. So, uh, Jane, you're involved in ID Box uh, Flying Carpet, about six different startups that I, I noticed. Um, so what is your kind of uh, focus area? What are your focus areas with AI or blockchain or um, uh, when it comes to financial inclusion uh, or sustainability even broadly? So I'm not a tech person. So I'm a 30 years working in international development, working with emerging economies, really understand the kinds of problems that we've been working with for the last 30 years. What, what I can do is help the blockchain companies connect their ideas and make them suitable for the kind of contexts that uh, exists in emerging economies because you can't invent a solution for Chad sitting in New York because Chad doesn't have the infrastructure, um, it doesn't have the internet, there may be cultural issues around how technology can be embraced. So, so I try and be that bridge between what their technology can do and then how the application might work in emerging economies and also where possible connecting them uh, to either governments or connecting them with, to international agencies uh, who might support the work that they're doing. Because one of the challenges that people who are working on these kinds of projects, which could potentially have a social impact but are focused at the bottom billion, is there, there's not too many VCs who are going to be interested in funding these. So finding uh, capital to be able to build and scale these projects is a challenge for them. So um, as much as I can, I'm trying to have that conversation and get people thinking about how you fund early stage startups, but that have got a technology that really could be transformative. You hit the nail for me there, Jane, uh, close to sustainable investing or impact investing sector, the traditional one over the past two years. Um, we had a, an amazing uh, conference here led by, organized by the Swiss um, Impact Investing Association last year 
with a topic called um, faith in finance, where they literally brought all religious faiths um, and signed uh, um, sort of a manifesto about their commitment as to where they would invest. But overall, I must say that I have not seen any meaningful a move from the traditional uh, impact and sustainable investing world into to blockchain and to looking. And maybe it's just a lack of education again. Maybe it's um, not enough risk appetite. What is your opinion about moving that sector or bringing them up to speed to look into these projects that are impact, uh, but through blockchain technology? So what I'm seeing actually is that there are some people moving in this space. It, it may not be um, the ones that, that you've, you've been talking to. In fact, um, I've been in close discussions with someone in Australia who's working on a uh, blockchain-powered social impact bond. Um, there's also at UNGA... The week after next, I'm actually going to be a part of moderating a meeting on alternative financing for the STGs, which is specifically going to look at mobilising private capital for uh, frontier technologies that can uh, create major social impact on the SDGs as they affect women. And so I've seen quite a few people who are coming up with these projects and working to engage with the, the sort of traditional impact investing crowd. So it's a bit like everything in blockchain. It's very decentralised. So you're sort of seeing people all around the world in different pockets working on this. I also know of someone who's working on this in Africa. Uh, I think the job that we could do better is how to connect all of these uh, projects and activities so the information can be shared if people have built platforms already that other people could leverage from, that instead of recreating the wheel that you know, we create a kind of knowledge repository of this because that's more than anything that's something that I see because... You know, I'm really trying to look globally and, you know, we've found more than 500 blockchain for social impact projects around the globe, but they tend not to be connected with other ones and, and oftentimes they're rebuilding the same thing that someone already did somewhere else. So somehow if we can find a way of connecting efforts, creating knowledge, sharing that knowledge, helping people know where to go to find the tech that they need to do things, um, I don't know the solution to that, but I think there's work to be done. And, I mean, one of the beautiful things about blockchain is you can actually create these global community token economies, but I think it's early days yet and no one's quite figured out how to do that. But I'm really looking forward to that kind of thing happening. Uh, Jane, uh, the FE and I often um, discuss this, which is uh, we've, we've uh, while the capital markets that we've currently got has uh, helped us out in many ways, uh, we've largely got it wrong in in, in terms of uh, having a lot of people excluded of the core financial services um, that that is uh, being offered. So, uh, we, I mean, I personally think, um, right, at least from a capital raising perspective, 
um, uh, ICOs are, are the kind of uh, ultimate inclusion for um, SMEs and startups that are uh, or innovations that are across the world that are coming up and people who want to contribute to this uh, innovative um, to these innovative ideas. Uh, and of course, we've not got it right. We've not got the um, regulatory aspects right. But what are your thoughts around this? Where do you think this could kind of evolve into with, with all the people uh, at the moment getting hit big time? Yeah, I think you hit it on the head, which is that ICOs have got themselves a bit of a bad reputation. Um, I also think, which doesn't mean ICOs are bad, but I think there's been some bad practices around ICOs. Um, I also think that uh, in terms of, you know, talking about the bigger impact of blockchain, it doesn't necessarily have to involve an ICO and it doesn't necessarily have to involve a cryptocurrency, but it can. Um, and I think getting a better understanding amongst people of the way tokens work within a community token economy and the different purposes and how that whole token economics can be developed is, is really an emerging discipline that we're learning a lot about. And, you know, people are understanding now that when you create a token economy, you're actually creating a new economy and there are consequences of that and you really have to think about all of the incentive structures and all of the participation structures that are built into it. So, so I, th I think there's a really simplistic notion that I hear a lot, which is if you're doing blockchain, you have to do an ICO and then you're going to have a coin and so forth. I think that that's going to start becoming more refined in terms of, you know, different things that people are building and whether it's purely fundraising or whether they've, you know, some people do it, they've already got a product and and they have other purposes for the tokens within their um, ecosystem. So I think we need the ICO market to be maturing and I suspect it's going to. Um, and at the moment, uh, to be honest with you, uh, the crypto markets are down and so a lot of people aren't doing very well with their ICOs at the moment. There's always something to learn uh, through the markets, uh, definitely. I think uh, this bear uh, turn is uh, giving the time to a lot of people to, to rethink their strategies and not to be sloppy in the way that they launch um, their ICOs. I see a lot of projects reverting to an equity uh, raise for, let's say, 10%, some percentage of the company to get um, their product at least live and then consider uh, an ICO if it's needed. I, I believe that it's overused and overabused, as, as I think that you all agree, and this will give the market participants a time to reconsider. You know, there's a few Australian ICOs that, that have been done, you know, within a fully regulated environment that already had uh, like a really good product like Power Ledger. So I think there's examples of these in different parts of the world. And I think even in the US, which has been quite a difficult place to think about it, people are working on how you can do something that fits within the regulations. So I think we're just going to see, you know, kind of Wild West ICOs and more that are a bit more thoughtful, which deliberately are working within the regulations that pay attention to KYC and AML and so forth. And I just think we're going to see more of that. But I think as a means of raising money for startups and new projects, it's been an incredible innovation 
It's just that in some instances, it's got a bit out of control. Human nature tends to overshoot. That's, that's how we are, right? And, and then revert and then, you know, it's like a pendulum. We'll see where we'll uh, equilibrate. So Jane, it was a pleasure to have you in this last few minutes of our podcast. Can we ask you some more spicy and maybe more personal questions? Of course you can. Yeah. So tell us when this bug of uh, blockchain bit you. It's a good story. My son told me to buy Bitcoin in 2010. Um, I think it was about 10 cents. And I just laughed at him and told him to go back to his studies. And um, he came back to me later on about three years ago. And he said, hey, mum, remember I told you to buy Bitcoin? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you know, now it's $1,000. And I said, oh, oops. And then he said, now, listen, you need to know about blockchain, which is the underlying platform for Bitcoin because it's going to change everything. And I thought, well, I didn't pay attention to him on the Bitcoin point, so I'm going to actually go and find out what this blockchain thing is. And so, you know, I started reading about it and trying to understand it. And it is complicated if you're actually trying to understand how it works. But one day I had this kind of eureka moment thinking about the Banda Aceh tsunami where so many people were lost, but no one knew who anyone was, all the bank records were lost, all the land titles were lost, money came flowing in, no one knew if it got to the people that it needed to get to, no one knew if human trafficking was taking place, this whole disaster environment. And I just was thinking about it one day and I just had this moment of clarity that if in fact all of these things had been already on the blockchain, secure identities, land titles, the track and trace of donor funds. It wouldn't have changed the disaster, but it would have made the reconstruction so much um, faster and better and easier. And that was the moment that I knew I had to both understand this, embrace it and talk to people about it. Great story, Jane. That was uh, really great. So so having said that, what's your favourite place of vacation? I'm always on a plane travelling all around the world, so I just love going everywhere. I don't know, I'm not vacations, new countries, new experiences. I was in Nigeria for the first time this year. We did a hackathon. It was just incredible. I just think the world, the global world that allows you to travel and in 24 or 36 hours being in a completely new place, talking to amazing people who are all trying to make this technology work is just so inspiring. So I don't need a vacation. My life is just this exciting adventure. Uh, Jane, what's your favorite uh, cuisine from the emerging markets? Uh, really everything Asian. <laughs> I can't, I can't <laughs> choose. I love Indian. I love Chinese. I love <laughs> Indonesian. Um, I'll go Asian food every day of the week. The spicier, the better. Great. And on that spicy note, we'd like to thank you being, for being with us today and, and giving us uh, a flavor of um, your passion and, and your work. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for having me. 